0: Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Henke, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. Together, we're about to explore and deconstruct the shame and stigma surrounding our sexuality. You heard that right, we're going deep on the topics of sex, relationships, spirituality, health, and everything else that impacts our ability to live, love, and orgasm freely. My hope is to shine a light on our shared experiences by normalizing taboo topics and empowering each of you to reclaim autonomy of your pleasure, your bodies, and your lives. You are now entering a judgment-free zone where I ask all the uncomfortable and embarrassing questions for you. Our unofficial mantra is be curious, not judgmental. So leave your inner prude at the door or strap her in tight because this is happening. friends. It's Kristen back again with a brand new episode of nothing confidential where we are normalizing taboo topics around female sexuality. Uh, also we are normalizing sexual liberation, healing, and embodiment over here with these conversations. My favorite, favorite quote by Ann Voskamp is shame dies when stories are told in safe places. I love it so much that it is in the the bumper. It's at the end of every single episode. And I really, really believe that that is the driving force behind this platform. It's why I have these women come on to share their stories of trauma and triumph and empowerment because I think it's important. I think that it gives the listener, hopefully it gives you permission to share your own stories and to invite the light in to dispel shadows around the shame and the judgment that keeps us small, that makes us feel isolated, that keeps us from living our most colorful, biggest, fantastical, magical, pleasure-filled life. Feeling fired up this morning. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I do want to share with you that I am about to kick off the third round of my six week program, The Living Room. I call it The Living Room because My hope is that the experience feels as intimate and cozy and emotionally safe as if I were to have you in my own living room where I can give you a cashmere throw and a glass of wine or tea and get down into the nitty gritty. (laughs) I've shared a little bit about it before, not much on the podcast. So if you are curious, uh, head on over to my Instagram at kristin.henke and be sure to go through my stories. I'm sharing all about it. Again, it is that safe place to eradicate shame from the stories that all of us have. Sometimes we need a little leg up when it comes to addressing our healing or the deconstruction of limiting beliefs. And some of us just want to be more free. We wanna have more fun. We wanna have better sex. We wonder if there's more out there than what we're experiencing. And the answer is almost always yes. So if you want to dive in with me for six weeks and five other ladies, I'm talking as if I'm speaking to one of you, I only open six spots at a time so that it feels super intimate, super close. Everybody can really connect and there's time for everyone to share. Uh, shoot me a DM, send me an email, get in touch with me. I would love, love, love to have you at the time of this recording. There are only two seats left actually. And it's really important to me because the group size is so small that the people who are there together are the right people. They are the people who are meant to be there. So this is not like a wide net. Like I am looking for a very specific person at a very specific place in her journey ready to step in and do this work so get in touch with me if that sounds appealing to you if you are curious about it would love to have you there so Today's guest, Katie Grimes, is a love addiction coach. She is supporting women on their journey to choose love rather than being chosen to feel special. Katie values her community of fellow heart followers where we share experiences of rebuilding our confidence, trusting our intuition, and living a life we love together. Tune in each week on her podcast, Anything for Love, for an authentic, humorous look at recovering from being addicted to love. This conversation, I I wanna say, Trigger warning: a big part of this conversation is sharing about uh, Katie's rape. So she has a really powerful, poignant story that does involve sexual assault. It is an incredibly hopeful story. She is so vulnerable and so raw and so real, but as always, I don't know where you, the listener, are on your journey, so if you are a recent victim or even if you are still extremely triggered uh, by you know things related to this topic, I just encourage you to to hit next uh, if it is not time, we don't want to be ripping open any fresh wounds we we don't we don't want that we I only want you to listen if you are in a place where you can receive inspiration and healing and hope from hearing someone else's experience and how they came out the other side and not only survived but are thriving. So I do want to lead with that. Um Katie is seriously just a, a wonderful person. She is so honest. And this conversation, you know, I felt like we could have talked all day. It really just just flowed. And I do get fired up a couple times. Uh, I, as always, I will, <laughs> I have to put my disclaimer in here. You guys know that I am not a therapist. Uh, I'm not a certified researcher or anything like that. So in the places where I get really fired up and I start citing like issues and things, this is stuff that I've read. They're issues that I'm aware of. I don't have the stats on it. I don't have the data on it. Um, so, you know just just take it with a grain of salt understand that i am amplifying and giving voice to real issues but you know when i make strong comments about how like something happens all the time like i you know i don't know what the actual data is on that but you know it is a thing so if you're interested you can look you can look into it so i just put that there <laughs> But yeah, we talk about love addiction. We talk about the difference between love addiction and sex addiction. We talk about trauma. We talk about slut shaming. We talk about victim shaming. We talk about what is possible on the other side of going through sexual assault. We talk about how her addiction to love started really early in a childhood relationship and how trauma from her childhood showed up in the healing space after her sexual assault. And she tied together, she made some really brilliant connections basically in her journey from childhood to that traumatic moment. And I I think it's really fascinating. So I hope that you guys get a lot out of this episode Please reach out to me for support. If this does, if you listen and this does trigger something for you, if you need someone to talk to, if you need a safe place to sh- just share your story, if you've never told anyone before and you just need to give it a voice and call it by its name, I'm here for you. I I'm, I really am, and I mean that so seriously. Find me. Send me a private message. As always, it is completely. That part is always completely confidential. The topics, the shame, all of that, like that's where the nothing confidential comes in. But when it comes to having a safe space to share something for the first time, to process it out loud with someone who is not gonna judge you, who is only gonna hold space and witness you, I'm here for that. So send me a DM, send me an email, whatever feels the safest and right. And if you need me to connect you to an experienced therapist or a coach or another type of guide who can help you take the first steps on your own healing journey, please let me know. I'm here to do that. I have a network of people who I trust who are so filled with heart and integrity and compassion and empathy for women. This is the work they do in the world. So please allow me to connect you and share my resources with you. And I will link a couple of good resources in the show notes. So if you are going through anything right now or are wondering about next steps, I'm going to go ahead and include those for you. And I'm just sending you guys a lot of love. I know that a lot of you are going to relate to this story and it's going to be raw. And I just, I'm sending you so much compassion and love. Take it slow, take care of yourself, be aware of where you are emotionally as you're listening And just be really gentle with yourself, okay? Sending you guys a lot of love. I'll see you on the other side. Oh my God, you guys. It almost happened again. It almost happened again. I hit record, but I didn't hit like record to this computer or whatever. So like Katie and I are just like rolling along, having the best combo and none of it was being captured. But it's cool. We're going to roll again. I'm here with Katie. (laughs) I'm here with Katie Grimes who I'm really jazzed to introduce you guys to because she is doing a lot of really important work in the space of love addiction. And if you guys have never heard of that, uh, it is something that I think a lot of women struggle with, men too, but they identify it um, slightly differently. And I'm going to let Katie explain what the difference is uh, between love addiction and the more commonly um, heard of slash talked about sex addiction. Um, because she is a love addiction coach. And I think that this topic is extremely important. I think that it affects all of us, whether we ourselves identify. Um, once she has described what this is. This might be something that you have experienced or that you are experiencing, but didn't have the language until today to describe. so i'm I'm excited to give you her her knowledge and her tools and her story. I think they're all extremely, important. So Katie, let's dive back in and start by describing the difference between love addiction and sex addiction. Yeah, so love addiction and sex addiction, I think the,
1: the commonality between the two is that they are in fact an addiction, right? So when we think of the word addiction, I think we often think about drug addiction and we think of alcoholism, right? Those are them probably the most common addictions. And our next feeling is kind of like this judgment or criticism of those people that have those addictions. Some of us don't believe that addiction um, is a choice. And and from my research, I've seen that it very much is in fact a disease, right? It, it's this this commonality of wanting to feel good about ourselves, but we continue to do things, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, love, you name it, to try to feel good about ourselves. And it's a compulsive need to do that. And yet here we are feeling like shit afterwards and, and, or making other people feel bad because the commonality between addictions is that it's very selfish and there's dishonesty and there's discontent and irritability. And so what I find is that with love addiction, most women identify as love addicts who act out sexually, right? So what do I mean by that? Some of the common characteristics are like wanting this, having this desire to be fixed, this um, feeling of being broken and thinking that somebody else can come along and kind of save them like this Disney princess syndrome. Um, It also is setting boundaries around sex or seeing someone and breaking them. Even though we've tried everything to be like, I'm not going to shave my legs. I'm not going to have sex with this person on the oh first Oh my date. God.
0: You said um, that. That is yeah. that is a real thing, y'all. I I did real. that. I've done that where in my early 20s when I was like out in the dating game, I would be like, okay, like this guy is super fine. I am not going to have sex with him. So I'm just not going to shave my legs. I'm sorry. Hairy legs never kept me from having sex. Just FYI. Same. So always, would- always shave your legs is is the main thing. And then- <laughs> And then the other part was then I would have
1: sex with hairy, hairy legs. So yeah.
0: it's like, yeah. all right, it not it, it didn't do anything. Did. So you're better off shaving your legs and um, getting treated for love addiction. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And then when
1: it comes to sex addiction, I find that most men commonly refer to themselves in my research as sex addicts. So they're using sex as a way to, um, f- to really validate the, the fear that they have of intimacy. And so they act out sexually, be it cheating on their partners, prostitution, strip clubs. Um, it could also be uh, masturbation and porn. And so while you find that some women often cross over into both lines, that I think commonly women aren't consider themselves to be love and relationship addicts and men consider themselves to be sex addicts. But underneath both of those diseases is the fear of not being good enough. And so it's the way that we self-soothe. And so I know this from experience because girl, I am one. Like I have been in recovery for the last four years of really trying to heal my relationship with sex, love, and fantasy.
0: Mm. So let's, let's dial it back then to the story of Katie and where Mm. you feel, um, obviously you're on the other side to an extent, like you're working in this actively, you've been in recovery for a long time. So you have some perspective. So I would love for you to share a little bit about like maybe your rock bottom when you realized that you had an issue, how you came to this work, and then your perspective and professional opinion on the early markers that caused all of that, like the cause and effect. Yeah. It's a longer story, but I'll I'll do
1: my best Let's to do just it. dive time. in. <laughs> yeah. So my rock bottom was four years ago. It was December twenty second, which just so happens to be my mother's birthday. No coincidence as we oh, roll into of this story not. later. <laughs> <laughs> we will go into the story later. There's no coincidence on that. Um, however, um, I was driving home. I had just had sex in a car with a guy that I had been really into for and had known for the last five years. But we had always played this sort of cat and mouse flirtatious game. And it was about six months before that my, we had all been out. My cousin had said to me, you know, he's into you, right? And I'm like, didn't he just tell us he got married? Like, what are you talking about? He's into me. And she's like, here's the deal, Katie, you always act yourself around married men, like charismatic, fun, easygoing, lighthearted, funny. But when you are with around a guy who you really like, you like aren't any of those things. <laughs> and she's like, so you need to check yourself because like, I think you have a fear of intimacy. So this was like, this was kind of stage one. And I was like, whatever. But me driving home in the car by myself, following his taillights, realizing that one, he didn't even make sure I got home okay. Two, he was taking a left to go towards back towards was his wife and I was taking a right to go home. And we were behind this like abandoned building, right? And so I felt dirty and ashamed and I felt guilty. And I grew up Catholic. So like you just don't do this shit. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And here I am thinking about all the judgment and all the criticism. And I sat there and I just cried. I weeped like I couldn't even see the lights in front of me because I was crying so hard. And all I felt was this immense amount of loneliness and disconnection. And I called a woman whom I had met a few months before sitting in 12 step recovery rooms. And I remember her sharing her story about sex and love addiction. And I called her and I said, you know, I know you offered to be there for me and to coach me through this and mentor me through this. I'm finally ready. And so the work began and I, and I say the work because I don't mean the work as in like, let's go to work. you know. I mean, literally withdrawal started. I literally made a list of all the behaviors that weren't serving me well, um, from having sex with married people, to reaching out to former sex partners, to dating, giving my number out, like you name it, the list was long. It was like Santa's naughty list. you know. It was just like all of these things and characteristics that just weren't serving me well. And every single day, we, me and this other person committed to getting me feeling healthier and happier when it came to relationships. And that was really the beginning of that part of my journey. I think what, what ended up happening and what transpired over the next, I mean, we can go into the pain in more detail, but I'll kind of skip ahead, which is like, a year, year and a half later, I started noticing that all these other women and men were, were asking for my telephone numbers, but I in these in these twelve step recovery rooms. But I was like, because I knew I was attracted to guys, I was like, that's not safe for me. So I'm gonna stick with just women and build that foundation. And what was really beautiful about it is I started to I started to build these friendships with women who were like-minded, who were going through the p- same pain and felt the same amount of joy and the same confusion and then the same excitement for like what was to come. And I didn't even know their last names. And so I found that when I started to build that relationship with myself and I started to build healthy relationships with other women, what ended up transpiring was all these other women started calling to have conversations and I couldn't get back to them fast enough because there were too many. And so I've, I realized in that moment that one, I maybe had something that they wanted, which is a common expression that we talk about in 12-step mm-hmm. recovery, which is you have what I want. And so I'm gonna learn from you as to how I can get it and listen. And then fast forward to like a series of unfortunate events of like between um, February of 2018 until April of 2019, which is in a series of that time, I was violently raped. I, was, I had lost a woman who I considered to be like a mother. Mm-hmm. I lost my grandfather. And then I lost my grandmother who, was, who pretty much raised me. So, and then I lost my job because I had PTSD. Oh my God. So all these things started to come together, like one after mm-hmm. another. And for like, oddly enough, girl, I was like really optimistic. Like, don't get me wrong crying in the bathtub, like uncontrollably, like when everybody was dying and going through PTSD and being startled and all of it that comes into it. And I know we'll get into that in a little bit, but like there was this uncanny ability to realize that I had built a beautiful foundation of recovery, of strength, of hope really over the last 10 years, but more specifically the last four Mm. with other people and i think being able to do that gave me the ability to be like this is just a cleansing. Oh, and i also lost my best friend oh, through because of the rape. So like all of this shit was happening and i was like going through so much at one time and it was that weekend of april 12th of 2019 which was not ironic. It was my best friend's birthday. Well, she was no longer, but it was my best friend's birthday it was the one year anniversary of my um i called her like my stepmom my stepmom passing and i got fired from a job and so i definitely had a pity party for like a solid two days
0: well i mean that's like a colossal like a clusterfuck on so many levels like not to be like, crass but that's like oh yeah oh my god like i'm just i'm sitting here with my mouth open i'm just like
1: Seriously. Can't it was, comprehend. I mean, you talked about it earlier when you asked the question, like when you, when you can see the perspective from the other side, like yeah. please do not let me minimize this and whatsoever. Like it was fucking hard, yeah. really, really hard. And so I had a pity party. I was like walking around aimlessly trying to get help because my boyfriend had been laid up after surgery. And I was like, I need to go for a walk. And I went for a walk and I called my sponsor in 12 step program. And I just said to her, like, I am at my wit's end. I don't know what to do and where to go. And she said, there are two things you need to do right now. One, you need to pray. And two, you need to get out of your own head. You have a man at home who needs you and who's asking for your help. And you're too busy in your own head dealing with all this bullshit, which she said it way more lovingly than how I'm saying it to you guys. (laughs) And she's like, it's time to be of service. So what I did was I went back home, I cared for him for a little bit, which is a, I, something I need to be really mindful of because I used to jump right into like helpful mode and lose myself. But instead I gave myself two hours to take care of him, give him what he needs. And then I went to the beach. And when I went to the beach, I had this moment of clarity that was like, this is my job. I am set out in this world to be of service, to share about my sex and love addiction to share about the obsession of wanting to find the one. And then also my journey of trying to be happy and how the word trying is really important because I find that it's not every day that I can be happy, but every day I can be grateful or open to receiving whatever's gonna come my way. Um, and then just sort of ride the ebbs and flows of, of life. And I say that from a, a lens of, you know, almost two years later now being able to look back and be like, woo
0: that was a hurricane. Like it just blew through. Well, something interesting, um, and so important that I would love for you to share, um, is that the first, the first time we talked and the first time I heard your story just about, you know, coming through, um, the rape, you shared something really interesting. You said that on the other side of that, you experienced, emotions that were familiar to you from like way back like it was it was an interesting like clarifying like super traumatic but at the same time you woke up from that experience and you were like yes this is the first time i've ever been raped yet the feelings i'm having like post this abuse are very familiar to me let's unpack that
1: yeah so you know i think the day the days after I mean, this is what's interesting about rape is that for my, and again, this is my own experience, you guys. So take with it what you will. Um, And what I found was the days after the rape, it's almost like I, I came to, like I was in, it's like getting in a car accident and then you're replaying the car accident back in your head, like, man, did I step on the brake? Did I step on the gas? Did I signal? Like, and you're just questioning every move and every moment and it finally like hit me on monday which was you know essentially a day or two after day and two after it happened that i was like oh shit something bad happened and while i couldn't call it by its name literally i could not call it by its name i did know that the feelings of hypervigilance like fearing that it was going to happen again fearing that i was unsafe in my own home um Questioning if I had done something wrong and really going to town with that one, like over analyzing, like if I had just said this or if I just worn that, if I had maybe not extended my right hand that way, you know, like literally beating the crap out of myself. That it was very, what was interesting about it was. When I had gone after I had come home and called on those two safe and trusted people, one who was my Al-Anon sponsor, another who was my SLA sponsor and really calling on, on them and saying, what am I about to get into? And they said, you're about to experience PTSD, which means that the hypervigilance, the not sleeping, the nightmares, the, eating too much, not eating enough. um, This is what's about to happen to you. And so it was really helpful because I could name it as it was happening. But then it was one of my sponsors who said to me, and so you may recall that this feeling is very familiar. One, because this is how you grew up in a chaotic and alcoholic home where You, I always questioned my behavior. If I was the one that made my mom happy or made her sad, or if I could have just said one thing or done another, it was the fearing. She always had this fear that we were always going to get broken into, or that somebody was going to take me. So that was something that was like her, her trauma passed on to me. So again, these feelings were really familiar, and then, and then also recognizing that the difference between then and now was that I had a choice as to whether or not I was going to let this eat me up. Mm -hmm. And I know many women whom I've shared this story with have said that they have just buried it. Yeah. Buried it. Um, that they literally it is so deep in their core that it only really manifests itself as physical pain at this point. And as I was driving, um, to go get help on that Monday, I heard a voice that said literally was my intuition. Um, the first, well, I would say, I heard my fear pop up. My fear said, don't tell anybody. And then my intuition kicked in and said, literally, and I yelled out loud in my car, like a crazy person. I was like, I'm telling everybody. Yeah. And the only, I don't know where the strength came from. It actually makes me cry. I don't know where the strength came from other than I kept hearing my intuition kind of kick back in and say, you were quiet for so many years about your mom's alcoholism. And you think about the friendships you lost and the choices that you made and the beds you slept in to try to, to, try to cure that loneliness and to try to cure that feeling of not feeling good enough. Mm. Why not do something differently this time? And so that was really powerful in sharing my story essentially with I mean, it ended up being six women, you know, the, t- yeah. the, the sane nurses that were in the room with me, my, my, at the time, best friend to, you know, a doctor and two, and two of the sponsors that I was talking to you about. And really just saying, saying like, okay, I'm about to go through this, but there's some beautiful thing that's going to happen on the other side. And I have no idea what it is. And, I, and you have to remember at that time, I was coaching, but I wasn't coaching for compensation. I was only coaching within these outside of these 12 step recovery rooms. So I didn't really know to make sense of any of this.
0: Yeah. Well, and I want to speak to, you know, one point that that popped out at me while you were sharing that. And for the listeners, you said, you know, in the car, you're like thinking to yourself fear popped up and said, don't tell anybody. And I think fear does play a role, but I think that the loudest voice that tells you not to tell anyone about your trauma, about rape, about abuse is shame. Shame tells you not to tell anybody because we have been conditioned that that all responsibility for being sexualized lies on us, yet our environment is constantly victimizing and sexualizing us. And I think anyone who has experienced um, date rape uh, specifically, really commonly, because it's somebody that you know, right? It's not a stranger. Like a, I think if you look at the data, like it's, it's not a stranger in a dark alley as often as it is somebody that you know and somebody that you um, trust or that you feel like you have a good sense of who they are and then things get dark. And so I think because of that, because of the fact that you knew them you feel like you should have seen it coming. There's like a part of you that feels like you are responsible for what happened to you. And of course, like we get into our heads and it's like, Oh, if I hadn't worn like this skirt or if I hadn't done this, or if I hadn't like, maybe he thought that I was doing this and interpreted it this way. Like, I'm sorry. There is literally nothing. There is nothing. All of you listening to me, there is nothing that you can do that is an invitation to be raped. Nothing. Mm Mm -hmm. And the thing about consent is that consent can be taken away. So if you're with someone, even if you are into them, even if you wore an alluring outfit because you hoped to have pleasurable, consensual sex with that person later, even if you like knowingly got into the car planning to have sex with them, and then they decided that they were driving things, you no longer felt safe, you no longer wanted it that's when it ends. That's when it's over. That's when even if you were raped in those circumstances, it was not your fault. None of it is your fault and it is never okay. Like never okay. And I just want that to be really, really clear for everybody listening.
1: Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point. Um, Two things I wanted to address was one, you talked about how overly sexualized women are in the society and I'll give you a good example. I'm. I loved the Fresh Prince of Bel Air when mm-hmm. I was growing up. It was such a great show, yeah. right? It's so funny. So this weekend I put it on, and um, uh, Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff like made a comment like, "Let's go get those twins and and make sure that they don't like you know share a bed anymore." And they were making yeah. sexualized jokes. And I looked at my boyfriend and I was like, "Man, I never realized how inappropriate the show is." But I've now watched this show many times since. And I have found myself being like, "Wow, the show isn't as funny as I thought it was, mm-hmm. because there are times where he's just chasing the honeys and like yep. you know doing all these things and and I think that that was a big part of my story, like so at, when the first assault happened, it was a sexual assault within this weekend I'm referring to, is that I made a comment right away, like I was just like, "Ah, uh-huh, you aren't too funny, like don't do that again," and like got up and like changed positions, yeah and um and so I had thought back to like. And by the way, I mean, when I, when I say I thought back, it was like that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday after yeah. I was thinking to myself, how many times have I been in situations where guys made, an, an, made a gesture or they went to reach for me or they grabbed my ass or like whatever else. And I'd been in those situations before. And there were times where I came in swinging, literally one time I did. And then another time where I've just yelled at them. And then another time where I just like, ha, ha ha like flirted it, played it off, and just quickly move and, and get out of the situation. And so I thought back to those circumstances of being like, I didn't get the response that I wanted in any one of those situations, which was not to be touched in that way. So, it, in one way, it really is true that like, no matter what I did, it didn't matter. The second is, I really value that you had just shared your perspective on like on consent. And what I understand, what I understood to be true for me is that our bodies are so resilient. My body healed faster. The bruises were gone within a few weeks. Right. But the, but our minds are not as resilient. Yeah. And so what took months, years, and even still to this day, is that reassurance that I, I didn't make this up, that this did happen, that I remember sitting in the, um, um, they put you in a, a one particular room where they do the rape kit, just like you would see on like SVU. Yeah. And the same nurse is somebody who is a sexual assault nurse. And she was going through the kit and like step-by-step step directions. And I, I remember very like shoulder shrunken, body caved in. And I asked her like, you know have i been sexually assaulted and she and she was like i can't comment on that but from everything you've told me i haven't done your exam yet but everything you told me you said no and no i know for many of us we haven't said no but yeah, we've yeah. we've resisted or we've pushed away or we've moved our bodies or we've set it in our heads and that's enough right like yeah and so one of the things that she said to me that i thought was so powerful during that time she said, I cannot tell you how many married couples mm. come in here yep. where the wife has been raped and the guy either doesn't remember because he was drinking or he remembers, but there's a disconnect between the two of them as to what was and what wasn't. And she said, I want to reassure you that at even any time moving forward, that you could be rolling around naked with your husband and at any point you decided to say, no, ow, that hurts, stop, then that is considered rape if he doesn't pay attention, if he doesn't, um, you know, you know, marital
0: rape is something that doesn't get talked about often enough. That is still like victims of marital rape are less likely than anybody to get justice because we belong to them. Like once you're married to them, you're their property and you should be having sex. And if you're not having sex or if you don't want to have sex or, you know, whatever, like nobody, no court recognizes marital rape. Like, I mean, not, yeah. not commonly, not often still, yeah, like I that's still an issue.
1: Yeah. I can't comment on that. Cause I haven't, I haven't seen yeah. the research on it and I, it hasn't been my experience, but I do recall the, he said, she said was really popular mm. during the re- the restraining order, yeah, and we had photos from that weekend, and so of course, like any any quote unquote friends who were going away for a ski weekend, there would be photos of everybody, there would be photos of me, uh, videos of me dancing, like things like that, and so what I thought was really powerful after the judge heard my story was he said. I am confident that a picture is not worth a thousand words, like, or something to that extent. I yeah. don't remember if it was a picture is worth a thousand words or a picture yeah. is not worth. Cause I was at that point, I was exhausted from telling yeah. my story.
0: Basically he's like, and these photos are not the full narrative of what that's happened. That's exactly and so what we're saying. Not, yeah. That's
1: awesome. Cause I had shared that when I look at the photo of that girl,
0: yeah, that
1: girl, her eyes are black, you know, like, even though I have brown eyes, her eyes are black in that photo and I can't see what's happening because there's such a disconnect. And so it was really powerful. You're right. His response was the, mm. this picture is not telling me enough about what happened, but the victim's story is. Yeah. And so therefore I'm in a trust that she feels unsafe mm. and fearful of her life. And I think that's what you touched upon this earlier, which is that, oftentimes my experience or the research I've now understood to be true is that we do often know the person who is harming us. Again, there are those chances that you do not, but yeah. that's what makes it so confusing too, is because one of the things I shared in port was I didn't say anything right after it happened to anyone who was there because this person had turned on me. Yeah. You know, this person whom i thought was being charismatic and funny and like, you know, uh, like like trying to get other girls while we were there, like just being a goofball flipped a switch in a matter of minutes. But when I look back at the behavior, I realized from the text messages it was all what do they call it when like you're when the um, predator like foreshadowing? Is like, yeah, it's foreshadowing, but it's like when the predator, oh, they're stalking dying. you. They're literally like they're like grooming you. That's the word. Yeah. They're like grooming you. And I look back on the text messages because I had to send them to the police and I I realized that he was grooming. And what was beautiful about my journey and my recovery is even though I knew I was a sex and love addict at that time, that this was before this had happened, my lawyer said to me, it's very clear that you're communicating to him. If you guys are bringing other chicks back, you better get your own house. Like this isn't this kind of party my friend and I are sleeping in the same room together. Like my boundaries were very clear. And what was really, what I was super grateful for was because what's interesting about um, addiction is that there is a high you get, right? So it's a, so you think about it when you watch a movie, you see a drug addict literally insert a drug into their arm and you see them like melt. You see their eyes closed and they're like relief. Body. It's yeah. a relief, right? But essentially what happens, it's the high. And if you've ever had morphine or any of that sort of like I had, I had a, the only reason I know this is because I had ovarian cis oh
0: the
1: <laughs> and the morphine hit my body. And when it did, there was this warm sensation that took over and my whole body just relaxed and I felt less fearful and more peaceful. And so what's interesting about getting high as a sex or love or fantasy addict or relationship addict is that high is still very true for um, that of being a drug addict or an alcoholic? You feel the like warmth take over, and so I think what was really interesting to me was to be able to look back and be validated by my lawyer and by other people who read the text to say your boundaries were really clear, even though um, e- even though his weren't, and even though you might look back and be like, oh, I could have said that differently, or I didn't need to, I didn't need to, you know, jab him back with a joke like that. Instead, really being able to look at the fact that, like I did feel high during that period of time when I was on that weekend away, but there were times where I was really grounded. yeah, um, and there was like a phone call I made in the midst of everything that was going on, and he the person on the other end said that I was very clear about what had happened. And you know, there's there was for me, an interesting dichotomy of being like, okay, so I remember every single thing that happened, but it almost feels like there was like a film over me. And that's sort of the high of what was happening. Because it didn't
0: feel good, but I was trying to make sense of like, wait, you were flirting with me. Was there like a part of you that was being validated and it was giving you that shot that you needed? Yes. Particularly before it happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and something that you you just said, you know, you're talking about looking back and you're like, oh, like maybe I shouldn't have added a joke there or whatever. Like, I think that's really important too, because we are so, again, like we're conditioned to like, not be too sexy, but then to be sexy, like don't be slutty, but be sexy. And then if you assert firm boundaries or just say what you need or what you want or what you mean, you're a bitch. And we feel like we have to like soften everything with like a little bit of a joke or a little ha Like, you know, we have to laugh after it so that it doesn't feel like as serious or at, because nobody wants us to be that way instead of just being like, don't fucking do that again. Or like, don't touch me or don't like, I don't like that, stop. Like a lot of women, like we're not taught that it's okay to do that We're not, you know, that's not something that as little girls, you know, no one's like, Hey, listen, if someone's doing something that you don't like, tell them to stop. Like guys don't feel the need to punctuate their desires or their commands or whatever with a joke. Like if a guy doesn't like something, they're like, dude, fuck off. You know, like that's how they communicate. If they don't like something, they're like, I'm not feeling that. They're not like, Hey, don't do that. Like they don't do that. They don't do that, and I think too,
1: probably most parents have conditioned their boys um, to wrestle and to play and to show affection or um, a likability to other p- other men in particular. Um, by wrestling and by pushing and these things, and so I've, I've read a r- really interesting article about how men need that relationship with their father in order to have that sort of combative um, demeanor, whereas women we don't need that to mm-hmm. survive. And so you're right, I, I think there is some truth to to what you're sharing. And what made me think of it too is that the softening and sort of the you know likability mm-hmm. factor had also played a major role in corporate in corporate America for me. Oh yeah. You know, I was also taught that to be an, ass- an assertive or an aggressive woman was not a, a sexy characteristic to have and that yeah. it didn't make me likable. And don't get me wrong, there were certain circumstances where yeah, you're right, my tone was probably not appropriate. But as a woman in America in corporate America, I also found that there were times where the behavior of the the men or the women in the room was not right. And so I'd call it out and just call it like I see it. And, you know, I know some of us have been conditioned to be a little bit more softer and a little bit more gentle. And I used to hear that feedback for years about how to soften my approach. And, you know, I think this was one of the areas when, when this rape occurred, I was like, this is not the time to soften.
0: No. You know, I
1: definitely took time to heal. And I, you know, I called the police a day after and then two days after, and then made sure to call every single week until I was ready to take the drive up there um, because where it occurred was three and a half hours away. And to go up and to state what happened for almost two hours. And what I found to be so fascinating, and I will probably get you on a tangent on this. Is there were three other people, this uh, the the rapist included, in that house. They didn't make any one of them drive to state their case. They yeah, called each one
0: of them. Yeah, particularly the victim blaming and victim shaming is a fucking thing.
1: It's crazy. It thing. I I got wind of that from the police officer,
0: and I was like, wow. so the accused rapist wasn't made to drive up there yes just you because you have to you have to prove it you have to prove that it happened to you yeah and you have to prove that you didn't want it to happen to you which is like oh my god we could that this could literally be the whole episode but i definitely want to because i'm so (laughs) i'm so fired up like for you and for women everywhere who have to deal with this shit all the time like this Mm -hmm. happens all the time. It happens every day, multiple times a day, all around the world. And it just, it makes me sweat out my armpits. Like that's how I mad it I'm I feel the same way. sweating yeah. out my armpits right now. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I agree. I, I think
1: keeping the focus on the hope would be really meaningful. Yeah. But I, I think the last thing I wanted to say was, I think one of the most beautiful parts, uh, there are two beautiful parts of this story. Three, three. I'm thinking of them as I go. <laughs> I think one I think one is that I learned that I can trust my intuition. Mm-hmm. Had some premonitions before it happened that he was not a good guy and had even said to someone that he is not a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a girlfriend of mine laughed and said, What do you feel like you have to lock your bedroom door at night? And I was like, oh, like I don't
0: know. <laughs> Yeah, kind of.
1: <laughs> right. And then the second thing is the career that I have had as a result because. The trauma and the symptoms were so bad, I had to leave my job, um, or be, be told to, left, job, to leave. Yeah. And then the third is there were as a there's a group of women, and I know they're going to listen to this. Is there's a group of women? There's nine others who sat in a room with me, and we shared our experiences about being raped. And what was interesting is that we all came from different backgrounds. We all had different sexual orientations. We all had different ethnicities and marital status, relationship statuses. But what I heard in those rooms was bonded by the same thoughts, the same feelings, even though our experiences were slightly different. Mm -hmm. And we all vowed, we're like, we're not calling it an experience anymore. We're naming it by its name. So our rapes were all different. Yeah. Characteristics of who was it? Did we know the person, et cetera? And I think having that level of support going through this process has been instrumental in my growth. And I I said to them kind of the last day we had all been meeting, I said, um, if I had to go through this rape again, because it means that I got to meet you girls, like I would do it again. Yeah. Because I think To be bonded by our thoughts and feelings is something that is so powerful because I think we are in a society where we are made to feel like we have to do it alone and that we're crazy for feeling a particular way. Mm. But when I heard these other women, I don't think I left the room without crying every time because I was like, oh my God, I'm not crazy. Yeah. For feeling this way. Like, I am not crazy for hat thought that. I'm not crazy for having that thought that like, did I make this up? Like, should I have raised my right hand, you know, or should I have worn that? Like the the coulda, shoulda, wouldas were real. And what was nice was they didn't validate by being like, no, no,
0: no, Katie, you shouldn't feel
1: that way. Instead it was, I've had the same
0: experience. Well, and one of my favorite quotes and the quote that I've like built this entire platform of nothing confidential on is that shame dies when stories are shared in safe places. And that is like that is a huge piece that's i believe that the sharing like the being in that room with those women the the recognizing that you're not isolated in this event and that you're not crazy and that you know what happened to you isn't your fault like that is why you've been able to heal and be so emotionally resilient i think it was i mean i really i believe it was that support and that's why It's so important to have these conversations and to tell these stories and to share these things that have happened to us in an open way and not be ashamed of them and let other women in. Like it feels really vulnerable because you don't want to be judged and you don't know what they're thinking and blah, blah, blah. But it's just like letting them in. They then can see themselves in your story. Like, whether, like, just like you're saying, out of those nine incidents, like it doesn't matter that they didn't happen the same way. And that you know that part doesn't matter. What happens is you know, what's left at the end of the rape and at the end of the trauma that, that brings us all together, we are more alike than we are different.
1: Well, um, I think you brought up a really great point too, of telling stories in a safe environment because I feel like too, that a lot of people may not, myself included, have had this thought of not talking about the things that really matter because it doesn't feel safe and trusted i know in 12-step recovery rooms there is an an anonymity meaning that they protect your identity and then meaning the people around you protect your identity and they protect your stories and so what's beautiful about that is is that you can feel really comfortable sharing intimate details uh that are not descriptive in nature but that are about the feelings it's outside of those rooms in the rest of this world, particularly around social media that I find that I was, re- I, I share this with you quickly is that I read an article recently of a woman who came forward and talked about the fact that she's a sex and love addict and the Huffington Post and the comments that I read on that social media were fucking brutal. Horrible. So much so that I had to take a breath and I gently responded back to one in particular. Yeah. Let me guess. <laughs> lots of slut shaming, right? Lots Tons. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And threats, tons probably. Asking, tons of judgment and criticism. That um, you know, if she just wanted to be with many partners, then she should just be a she should just be poly. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. Which is a whole and other instead, <laughs> realizing that there is this is a disease, right? And and just as much as rape is a disease in a way, because I know that the person who raped me was hurting, and so He's therefore sick. he yeah. hurt me. Right, yeah. so I think what's important is my experience is mine. It's not yours. It's not anybody else's to comment on, other than it's merely, um, I can. This is what I love about twelve step recovery. I can identify with what you shared with. The this is a part of your story that I really resonated with. Right, I'm not beating the shit out of the rest of your story because maybe I didn't understand something yeah. you said or I didn't agree with you. But I do love the part where I can go, wow, that was meaningful to me. Like this, this part of your story impacted me. It touched my heart. And if at any time I'm feeling um, a hot flash, if I'm feeling resistance, if I'm feeling resentment, I know that there's some truth to somebody's story that is true about me, and I'm That's not triggering willing to you. It. Yep. yep. Oh yeah. And so I found that in that experience with the woman who shared her story in the Huffington Post, when I responded. Um, I did educate. I did come from a place of saying while I respect your opinion, please know that sex and love addiction is in fact an actual actual addiction that is more common than drugs and alcohol, which yeah. is Mind-boggling
0: to because, me, because it's I, undiagnosed, right? People are walking around without the language to describe this. So, I do, I do want to bring this full circle. Um, I would love it. You touched on it briefly in the beginning. So we're, you know, through this extremely transformational traumatic experience that really um, gave you a lot of clarity, as much as, you know, obviously how horrible and damaging it was. Like you were able to bring a lot of meaning out of it, which I do want to take a moment to like honor you for that. Like the the courage and the resiliency that you were able to lay hold of for yourself is incredibly powerful and I hope offers so much hope to other women who have gone through something like what you've gone through. Um, But on the other side of that, as you're getting deeper into this work, like you're recognizing that this is this is a need. So like pick up after the event where you start to recognize this is something that I feel called to do this is what i need to do and then i would love to hear more in detail about ways that people might be able to identify love addiction in their lives and maybe in the lives of like a friend or you know whatever just just to give them that language absolutely so when it came to me
1: recognizing that this is the work that i wanted to do that this was my purpose and this was my passion i think i asked myself the question what what is the thing in my life that has caused me the greatest amount of pain and how can i better how can i better explain to people like the beauty on the other end of it because it's a painful disease right it is one in which it's obsessing about being with someone else it's obsessing about if you just dress a certain way or you just like more things on their facebook or show up to their events then they will recognize that you're the one and that it'll bring great, deep meaning to your life that you are loved. And I think for me, what I recognized was, even though I felt an immense amount of pain, shame, and guilt for having this, that I realized that I was living a double life for a really long time. I had my life in corporate America. And then I also had me leaving at 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the afternoon to, to get to a 12-step meeting. And to heal the parts of me that I, I always say that sex and love addiction is merely but a symptom of my my not feeling loved as a child. I mean, this was a question you asked me early on is that, you know, I think the first woman who really broke my heart was my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, this this confusing time of growing up in an alcoholic home. And, and you know, the question that like kind of pisses me off still is people will go, so does she still drink? And it's like, what? <laughs> What's interesting about alcoholism is that I have dated alcoholics who actually don't drink. Yeah. And that's mind-boggling, right? Because you're like, well, when you're an alcoholic, it's people who are like falling down on the floor drunk.
0: No, not necessarily. Like you can be 12 years
1: sober and be an alcoholic. Still be an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, some of the signs and characteristics of alcoholics or drug addicts or love addicts or or um or any of the diseases or any of the addictions is really that of selfishness. You know, we're doing things so that we will feel better despite what anybody else wants. Yeah. Or we have the disease of like helping everybody, right? Of like, it, that if you are smiling at me, then it means that I'm a good person and that you like me and therefore I am loved. And so my feeling good about me is dependent on whether or not
0: you are smiling that at me. That deep you. need for external validation.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's very simil- similar. That's very well said. And that's very similar to codependency. right? Yeah. Oh, Is, yeah, this deep need of wanting to be validated, to be loved by other people. And so I think for me, when I started realizing that there was one, this need to, um, build a safe and trusted support system that was not my girlfriend's, that was not my family members, that I could also, um, develop a relationship with a higher power or a god of my understanding, not of the understanding that I grew up understanding yeah. <laughs> and how that would how faith meaning not a not a belief um, in the man with the long dark hair right, but right. rather <laughs> but rather a belief in something greater than me that was yeah. going to allow me to feel, good about myself, to feel whole. And I'm hearing a lot of people, not just in this addiction, but right now in our environment, talking about the fact that they feel disconnected and they feel isolated. And here's what I know to be true from my own experience. When I feel disconnected and isolated, it is because I am disconnected and isolating from myself, not from other people. It's because I'm either giving too much to somebody else or I'm not giving enough to myself. And so, well, how I find that manifests itself for me to answer your last question was I found myself reaching out to former sex partners. I had found myself and previously wanting to fantasize about being with someone I had been with or a celebrity in a sexual way. It also um, made me want to um, Eat less or work out more so that I could, my body could look a particular way um, so that I would become more attractive. So, if you think about it, I feel like there's like a particular bird, I think it's maybe it's like a peacock where she like puffs up her feathers to make herself appear more attractive. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like that's love addiction, right? It's yeah. like, how can I stand taller? How, how, so how high can my heels get? How can I stand taller? How can I appear to have more confidence? And so what I find is that underneath all that surface level bullshit is not feeling confident, Mm -hmm. not believing that we deserve love, and feeling like we are broken or need to be fixed in some way, shape, or form. So we are always looking to others, whether it's coworkers, whether it's our family members, friends, the people we're attracted to, to validate, to tell us by word, gesture, or otherwise that we are okay. And Mm -hmm. so I find that that's kind of like a really good synopsis of of it. And then the last thing I'll say too is there is a 40 questions for self-diagnosis. If you type in, and I'll give it to you so you can put it in the show notes, is SLAA stands for Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. SLAA has on their website uh, 40 questions for self-diagnosis. It's not like WebMD. Okay. You go through the 40 questions. It's a simple yes or no. And I found that I answered like all of them with the exceptions of the ones that I had to Google the words for because I was like, (laughs) I don't don't know what that means. Yeah. (laughs) like, I don't know what voyeurism means or I don't know what exhibition means. But I think what I've found is now that I've gone back and reflected on my own behavior within those 40 questions, it was alarming to me. Mm. That, oh my gosh, here I've had this rash, quote unquote, this rash for so long. And I never knew, I knew that I had symptoms, but I never knew like what, what it was actually called. And now what's really beautiful is now I can call it by its name, which mm-hmm. is love addiction. And I think you talked about this too, is that there's a lot of shame around sex and love addiction. I didn't want to call myself it. I know I have many clients who are like, I don't want to identify it. And that's okay. You don't have to identify as it. All, all I need for the woman that wants to get healthier, and I say woman because I focus on coaching women, yeah, is that they have a desire to do anything when it comes to love. And what do I mean by love? Loving themselves so that they can be in a loving and committed relationship. Because here's the deal. We were all put on this earth to love and to be loved. Yeah. The goal is not to never be in a relationship right? The goal is to be in a healthy and happy relationship with ourselves first and then with someone else. Mm -hmm. So I try to break down really simple solutions and steps to get there, but it does take practice, you
0: know? Yeah. So are you in a relationship currently? I am. You are? Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious how, how are you just like, um, say an alcoholic who is in recovery, has been in recovery for a long time. Maybe they get into a relationship with someone who has a healthy relationship to alcohol and they socially drink and they have to take steps obviously to, um, to protect themselves and to stay healthy in that relationship. So I guess I'm asking the same of you, like what steps do you take to stay aware and healthy in your romantic relationship now that you have it?
1: I think for one, I always make time for myself. So this was a conversation that he and I had very early on. He had asked me the question, um, "What is it? what do you expect of me in a relationship if we were to, this was very early on, but like, if we were to be in a relationship, what are the things that you expect of me? Um, and if you could get quiet and kind of think about that for yourself, it would be really helpful so I can figure out if I can meet you halfway. And so when I did, one of the things I wrote down was that I really wanted time alone. I just spent a year and a half actually not dating and really spending time getting to know me, which is not true for everyone's experience, but it was for me. And I found that I really valued that quiet time and that one of my old habits was that I would go out and do something for myself, but I'd constantly be checking in or, hey, I'll be home in five, or do you want me to pick anything up for you while I'm out? And I don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) So I think that was one. I think two is letting him know when I am triggered or when I feel like I'm getting high. So oftentimes, our language is I need to get to a meeting, either tonight or tomorrow. I need to get to a meeting. And that's that he has picked up on as code for something is triggering me outside of our relationship that is making me feel less than. And so I need to go take the steps to take care of myself, which means one, I need to be alone, and two, I, or I need to be alone so I can go make a phone call to someone whom I trust. And so that's been really instrumental in those two things in particular. And then I would say the third is communicating clearly to him when the trigger is him. Mm-hmm. So there are times where you know, particularly I think like attracts like. So what I've found is while there were some ways that I thought he was super healthy and i was like wow he like is so yeah. calm and so patient and he's not anxious and he's like his tone of voice is really soothing i'm sometimes not like that
0: yeah and so what i
1: found is that we were talking when we first when we first decided that we were going to have sex together it was a conversation one because i had had the trauma but two i also knew that i was an addict so i didn't want to go into it just within a couple of dates like ripping my clothes off which we started to do and i ended up pulling the pulling the reins back and saying hey listen Mm. I want to do this differently. I actually want to get a chance to get to know you. I would love for the chance to build a long-term relationship, but that means that I'm going to have to communicate a little bit more than I normally do. And so he said, I'm down for that. Like I've done this wrong my whole life. (laughs) Let's, and by this, I mean relationships. He's like, let's try it differently. So what we did was we talked about sex and we talked about, I remember one of the conversations we had was that we don't look each other. In, we didn't look each other in the eyes when we had sex. Yes, you're like no and, eye gazing during yeah, sex. Yeah. I was like, I <laughs> feel like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Like, don't kiss me on the lips. And, um, and so I said, would it be cool with you? And again, I was like, let it be organic. Let it be natural. But I think I have a fear of intimacy, so it would be really nice if we could try to introduce that, like in some way, shapes, or form. And he was like, "You know, I was thinking the same thing. Actually, like, can
0: we have waffles after? Like, can right. we do breakfast? Is that like
1: <laughs> right? Like, can we make this as organic and natural and intimate as possible without it being like overkill?" And I know for some women, you probably just cringed. I'm like sweating by saying that because it was a really intimate conversation that brought me a lot of discomfort. But what I noticed is that we both had a fear of intimacy and he acknowledged it too. Mm-hmm. He was like, you're right. It hasn't been that way for me before. And I would like to do it differently. And it's scary to me because I care about you and I don't
0: know how to do that. And I'm like, yeah. that's cool. I don't either. Well, <laughs> you gave him permission to, to say that, to out himself. Yeah. Yeah. By having that conversation and by sharing your needs. And I think this is a great place to just remind everyone that a, every, anytime you meet somebody, okay, like this, this has been my personal experience. I don't have any data to support this, but it is true of myself, especially when you meet somebody and you're like, Oh my God, like they are so like healthy and so grounded and they're so articulate. Like We learned all of that from therapy and from like, we're the most fucked up, like the most healthy people, quote unquote, are the people who have dedicated themselves to doing the work because at one point they were incredibly unhealthy. So don't let anybody make you feel inferior or anything like that because they're healthier than you. Like that is not the case. They might just be further along the recovery journey than you. And it's important really well said. Yeah, it's important to recognize that. And again, like you were saying that when you met him, you felt like he was so far ahead of you, yet you were the one who had to like really clearly articulate your needs, and you then gave him permission to kind of like show a little bit more of his shit. So completely. And I and I think too, what I realized is as I I think attraction
1: made me put him on a pedestal Mm -hmm. at first that he's so this and he's so that, and there's nothing wrong with him. And then we both recognized that we were doing it to each other because we were talking about it. And yeah. you know, he said, I don't, I don't want to put you on a pedestal that you're better than me or vice versa. So what it made me recognize was that the work that I had done on myself allowed for him to come meet me halfway as opposed to being lucky that I yep. met him. Yep. And I think that that was crucial. Mm-hmm. And I think too, it made me want to continue to recover. It made me want to continue to commit to doing this work, coaching other women. It made me want to commit to my own work with my coaches and continuing to show up at meetings and share my story and do podcasts and things that just allow um, for me to have more awareness of when I want to put him on a pedestal or put others on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I mean, I was a hot mess express and I had to like come in kind of taking a different look and a a different viewpoint to say, you know what, I would really like to emulate those healthy people that I'm seeing that are in my life and how I can be thinking different thoughts and beliefs about myself Mm -hmm. to have a healthy relationship with others.
0: That's beautiful. So as we wrap up, People are listening. Maybe they're sitting there. Maybe they have Googled um, the 40 question uh, assessment and they're like, they already know that they're a love addict. What first, part one, what is the first thing you would tell somebody who has realized that they are a love addict? Like, what's the first thing that you would tell them to do to support themselves? And then, secondly, how can they? work with you if they are interested in getting that level of support. They're like, I'm in, this is a thing. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Let's cover yeah, it. Yeah. I
1: think one and two go hand in hand, which is I'm a big believer that you cannot do this alone. So when you have that recognition of, oh shit, I have some of these, or even if it's just one, right. And you're just like, Oof. we all have things that we need to work on, but what prevents us from doing the work is shame, guilt, and fear. And so to – I love that Brene Brown says, like, the antidote for shame, fear, and vulnerability – I mean, the shame and, and fear is vulnerability. So yeah. actually speaking your truth. Laying it all
0: out and burying it all, showing it all.
1: Yeah. And and in a way, uh, I'd like to add to that, like – and I'd like to bracket, like, parentheses around your comment, which is, like, with a safe and trusted person. Because yes. I think – and that's who I can be for these women that are are listening is – the first coaching call that I do is free. It gives you an opportunity to see results right away. To speak your truth, I ask you three specific questions. It asks you to just get quiet and assess for yourself what feels true for you and where do you want your life to go. One And some ladies, they will literally reply, I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> and that's okay. The goal of having that first discussion with one another is for you to see the hope, of what life can be like, and to take actionable steps what, by just taking one by the time we get off the phone. And then what I always often do when we are talking in that first coaching call is to talk about the services that I provide. So there are a number of ways to work with me. One is on a private coaching basis, and it's not like therapy; like we're virtual. It is a three-month commitment. It allows for you to absolutely see, like, work towards the results that you want to see in your life. Um, and then I also have like online courses and whatnot. But I usually customize what each person needs when we're on the call together, because some women are not willing to go the extra mile for what they're looking for, whether it's like to go to SLA meetings or to do journaling prompts. So we we figure out kind of what each person, or I figure out what each person needs. Um, so then that way the person can get the kind of help that they're looking for. So when, you know, to go back to your first question, when you've made the, when you've recognized that you can identify with my story or your story and realizing like, oh, hey, we might need, might need some support around this. It's asking yourself, like, am I willing to get the help that I need? And not being embarrassed or feeling like you're going to be a burden. I mean, this is literally what I do for work because I love it. It's not a burden. Um, So I think it's just admitting that like, all right, it's time to get help. Let's do
0: this. Mm -hmm. And we'll work through all the other bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Katie, thank you so much, first of all, for being willing to share so openly about um everything. I mean the the events in your life that brought you to this moment to where you're helping so many people heal and find hope were incredibly painful and I just appreciate the the courage and the self um I don't even know the word I'm looking for here, just the self-realization and and the self-love that it requires to do the work that you've done to get to this point and to have been able to spin something so horrible into something so beautiful and so helpful to so many other people. Um, I just thank you. I thank you on behalf of victims everywhere and people who have gone through similar traumas. Um, and I could literally talk to you all day because the shit is a, it's fascinating and B it just, I feel like it needs to be talked about. It needs to be shared. So I don't, I don't often plug the show like in the show, but for anyone who has listened to this and whether you got value out of it for yourself, whether you recognize something about yourself or maybe you recognized a friend, like maybe you're listening and a friend popped into your head. I'm going to tell you right now, do not call that friend and be like, you're a love addict. Like don't do that. I know. But maybe send them this episode and just be like, I found this extremely riveting and couldn't stop listening. Like, let's, I want you to listen and let's like talk about it. I mean, that's how I get my husband to like be on board with shit all the time. I'm like, I don't like go to him and I'm like, Hey, we need to do this. I'll send him a podcast about someone being like, I realized that I needed to do this. And then we get together afterwards and we chat about it. That's like one of my favorite ways to bring up hard conversations sometimes. Um, yeah, so, because I yeah. think hard
1: conversations are awkward. So it's nice to be able to be like, hey, listen to this. This resonated with me. Yeah. Like, I would love for you to listen to it too and let's talk about yeah. it. I think Having that's like a really an good way.
0: Yeah. So please like liberally share this episode, share this information, share Katie's information. I will obviously have all of the links and resources and things in the show notes. So everyone says that at the end of the show. And I don't know how many people actually go to the show notes, but like go to the show notes and click on them, pull them down, see all the links, get the resources and the tools connect with Katie. If you need that support at this point in your life, um, we're here for you reach out to Katie. If you, if you feel like it's less scary to reach out to me first, reach out to me first, send me a DM. That is the whole point of this platform. And I will say that over and over and over, because this, this is a safe space for you totally. to tell your stories and to share and to hopefully get healing. So Katie, thank, thank you.
1: you for, thank you for creating this safe space. It was really an honor to be able to share my journey with, with you all, uh, yourself and the followers and, And to be able to have this platform to speak so openly, because I think what's so beautiful about it is that there is hope on the other side, despite all the shit that has gone down and will go down. Like there is hope on the other side. So thank you for listening and and sharing your experience too. This is beautiful.
0: Mm, We're just going to mic drop on that. Thanks guys. We'll see you soon. Hey. Thank you so much for hanging in there and listening with an open and curious heart. I hope this conversation has inspired, educated, and entertained you, or at the very least, shaken things up in a productive way. Ann Voskamp says that shame dies when stories are told in safe places. So please share, rate, and review. Sending you love and dark chocolate. Talk soon.